Two weeks ago, we began this series entitled God of Glory. God of Glory. And we opened up by looking at this psalm, Psalm 145. And we saw there David's resolution. And what did David resolve? He resolved that he would meditate on his God. And so I want us to see it again. Our focus will be verse 5, but we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 9. And we are reading the very word of Almighty Creator God. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, And his mercy is over all that he has made. Now we spent most of our time in that first message unpacking verse 5. And then at the end we drew this doctrine from verse 5. The person and the works of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. The person and the works of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. To which I hope you say, what an understatement. Right? Of course, the person of God and the works of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. Indeed, he ought to be central in all our thinking. His glory ought to be the ultimate end of every thought we think. And then we left off last time with me trying to uh, take this doctrine and impress it upon us by giving you five reasons that we should imitate David in resolving to meditate on the person and the works of God. Five reasons we should follow David's example in saying to our own hearts, I will meditate on my God and his works. The first reason that we already saw was that there is no subject that is more exciting or compelling to think about than God. No subject in the world that can be more compelling, more thrilling to the soul when rightly sought out than the subject of God. And so this morning we're going to press on with reason number two. Reason number two, you should imitate David's example and resolving to meditate on God and his works. And here it is. Thoughts of God are the highest thoughts our minds can have. Thoughts of God are the highest thoughts 
that our minds can have. Now, certainly there are many things that are necessary for us to think about. God has placed many callings on each and every one of our lives, and we cannot be faithful in those callings without applying our minds to those callings. And so I'm a husband, I'm a father. Both of those roles require me to think about my wife and my children, their needs, how I can best care for them. I've been called to be a pastor, and so I have to apply my mind to this congregation and especially to the Word of God and how to bring the Word of God to bear powerfully on our lives. All of us have to think each day about food for the body and what we're going to wear and when we're going to sleep, that these things are necessary things and they will occupy our minds. And then there are also many subjects that are not absolutely necessary to think about, not in the same way that food and clothing are, but nevertheless, they are very, very important. For example, it is important that we think about the moral questions of our day. It is important that we think about where we stand on abortion or homosexuality or even gambling, or various forms of entertainment. These are great needs in our world that are are worthy of our thinking. And then we look around and we see poverty around us. Poverty in our own community, sometimes poverty in our own church. And we see orphans, and we see widows in need of care. And we see especially a world in need of the gospel. It is right for us to apply our minds productively to thinking about these things. Certainly thinking about one another in this church. How we can better serve one another, care for one another, grieve with those who are grieving, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. How we can serve one another. That's important. It's worthy of your time. And it's worthy of your thought life to apply your minds to that. And then even beyond these things, there are still many grand subjects that can occupy our minds. Maybe in our spare time, whatever spare time we may have in this busy world, we can apply our minds to thinking about the universe. I enjoy reading the occasional article in Discover magazine about some faraway galaxy or some recent theory concerning black holes. Even thinking about things like that can have a sanctifying effect on us. Few things help us to marvel at God's creation or to receive a healthy, heaping dose of humility, like thinking about the stars. But we can apply our minds to history. There are so many valuable lessons and truly interesting and encouraging anecdotes that can be found in reading the stories of the past. I especially love biography, though you don't have to go that route. Whether it's worldly heroes like Alexander the Great or Winston Churchill, or even reading about villains like Emperor Nero or Adolf Hitler, or whether it's reading about Christian missionaries like John Payton or Hudson Taylor, 
or the accounts of godly women like Corrie ten Boone or Amy Carmichael or Helen Rosevere or Lady Jane Grey. We do well when we apply our minds to history. We are well served when we think about such things. The truth is, there has never been a time in the history of the world in which people had more resources to help them think about grand subjects than we who are living right now in this day and in this time. Whether it's reading a book, whether it's watching a documentary, whether it's going to a museum, we can get lost in learning about the incredible microscopic world that goes unseen by us each day. Or the amazing creatures that live in the depths of the ocean. Or the formation of mountains and volcanoes. Stories of people who who lived long ago and are now gone. The amazing, strange reality that is your own human body. One of the great indictments of our time is that so many people in our culture today keep their minds occupied with such trivial junk when they have at their fingertips such wonderful possibilities. As people have said, we have smartphones in our pockets, but dumb brains in our heads. We have access to more things to think about that are worthy of our thinking than any generation before us, and we seem to make use of it less than any generation before In his book, The Dumbest Generation, Mark Bauerlein explains how the rise of digital media and social media have captured the hearts and minds of young people so that they are no longer readers and they come to college no longer having the general knowledge that students used to have in the past. In his opinion, the educational future of our nation looks quite dim. Mount Hermon, Christians are to be a people that love knowledge. We are to be a people of the mind because we understand that all truth is God's truth. Proverb 10.14 says the wise lay up knowledge. They store it up. They, They keep it. In Proverbs, the wise man seeks to know much and to speak little, whereas the fool speaks a lot but knows little. We are to pursue wisdom, and you cannot have wisdom without the pursuit of knowledge. But dear friends, at the end of the day, there is no knowledge that we are to pursue more than the knowledge of God. There is no subject that takes us higher or deeper than thinking about the infinite one. Our God is incomprehensible, outside of time, outside of our universe, and yet filling every square inch of it. Our God is three, and yet he is one. He is eternal, and yet inside of time. He is utterly transcendent and beyond us, and yet utterly imminent right here, right now, with us. Our God is both angry at sin, and yet utterly, perfectly happy. He is the God who never changes, the God who can never change his mind, and yet he acts and responds to the prayers of his people. There is no subject that we can think about that has a greater impact upon our souls than thinking about God himself. 
It is impossible to truly think about God without it having some impact on your soul. For the sinner, lost in his sins, thinking about God may cause fear and trepidation, feelings of guilt and shame. For the Christian, thinking about God brings feelings of amazement and joy that such a God as this is our God that we are his and he is ours. Thinking about God has a humbling effect on our souls. Thinking about God has a clarifying effect. It has a way of putting everything into proper perspective, helping us see things as they really are. Our big problems turn out to be really, really small when we set them against the backdrop of our God. And our little prayers proved to be huge and then there is this there is no other subject in the world which you can think about in which the subject is also with you knowing your thoughts even as you think about them and yet this is true about God he is with you as you ponder him (laughs) there is a kind of communion that we get to have with God speaking with him, depending upon him, even as he guides us in learning more about him through his word and by his spirit. God is our tour guide on the glories of God. And oh, what joy it is when we become lost in thoughts of God. What joy there is in intimate communion with God when we begin to see just how amazing he is and then realize that this overwhelming God is right here with us, his presence with us in this room. To consider that this God loves us, cares about us, gave up his very son for us, gives us his spirit, it ought to leave us speechless. Thinking about God, meditating on him, as David says. Chewing upon the truths of who he is and what he has done and experiencing rich flavors as we chew. This is a taste of heaven ahead of time. In heaven, we will know God even more fully. In heaven, we will experience a greater joy than we can know here in this life. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Heaven will last an eternity because it will take that long for us to see all of God and to know him and to experience him in all his fullness. That will be abundant life. But it doesn't start then. It starts now. This is what Jesus saved us for. Yes, Jesus saved you to rescue you from hell. Yes, Jesus saved you to bring you to heaven. But ultimately, Jesus saved you to bring you into a relationship with God. Jesus saved you to open your blind eyes that you could behold God. Worship, seeing and savoring God is what your salvation is all about. And it starts now. It's dangerous to say, I'm going to wait. I'll wait till I get to heaven. Then I'll really devote my mind to God. 
while I'm on earth, I'm going to think about the stuff of earth, and God will have his time. It's dangerous, because you can lose the things that are eternal by giving yourself to the things that are passing. It is only by being heavenly minded that you will be of any earthly good. If you will not love God in this life with all your heart, and yes, with all your mind, you won't love him in the next life either. Heaven is only promised to those who love God now, to those who want God now, to those who adore God now. Dear friends, what is the one thing that brings you your highest joy in this life? If you had to say, this is my one thing that has captivated my heart, and I go back to it again and again, it is my strength and my security, what would it be? Some of you may know the song by Rich Mullins, My One Thing. It's a prayer that he sings to God. He says, everybody I know says they need just one thing. And what they really mean is that they need just one thing more. And everybody seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you. Still, I want to love and serve you more and more. You're my one thing. And then he prays, save me from those things that might distract me. Please take them away and purify my heart. I don't want to lose the eternal for the things that are passing. Because what will I have when the world is gone if it isn't for the love that goes on and on with my one thing? You're my one thing, and the pure in heart shall see God. What's your one thing? Is it God Himself? Is He the treasure of your life? I promise I won't take that much time on the rest of our reasons. Reason number three. Reason number three to imitate David's example of meditating on God is this. Nothing plays a larger role in shaping who you are than your thoughts of God. Nothing plays a larger role in shaping who you are than your thoughts of God. There is no doubt about it. Yes, your genetics play a role in shaping who you are. And yes, the way you are raised and the experiences of your life play a role in shaping who you are. But nothing has a greater role in shaping who you are than how and what you think about God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To the degree that you do not fear God, but have low or inaccurate thoughts of God, to that degree you will be a fool. To the degree that you have low thoughts of God, you will live in foolishness, you will make foolish choices, you will suffer a fool's consequences in this life and in the next. But to the degree that you have high and accurate thoughts of God and have reverence for Him in your soul, you will be wise. To the degree that you have accurate and high thoughts of God, you will make wise choices in this life and you will experience the consequences of wise choices in this life and in the life to come. Certainly when it comes to the worldview issues, 
that surround us every day. You can pretty much guess where a person is going to stand on any issue based on how they think about God. Know where they stand on God and how they believe God to be and who he is. And you can pretty much guess where they're going to stand on any issue, how they're going to look at any particular issue. Nothing shapes your worldview more than what you think about God. Now, maybe there's someone in here saying, Justin, the truth is, I don't think about God. It's not that I have low thoughts of God. It's that I just don't think about him very much. I just, I just live my life. He's, he's not in my mind. He's not a part of my regular life. I don't think of God. Well, if that's you, then I would say, friend, you need to know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Even your lack of thinking about God is shaping who you are. If you do not think about God, then you are what we would call a practical atheist. At least for all practical purposes, you are living as an atheist. And at least in practice, you're denying that God is there. You're denying that he's worth thinking about. And you're living your life as if he's not there. And it is the fool who declares in his heart that there is no God. And to push God out of your thoughts is in many ways one of the greatest acts of high treason we could ever commit. Because it is to take him who is most worthy of your thoughts and to treat him as if he is least worthy. It's to act as if other things, other things in this life are somehow more worthy of your attention and your affection than the God for whom you were created. To live without God in your mind is, is to, to be upside down. It's to see the world backwards. It's to, it's, it's to throw paint on the Mona Lisa. It's to tear down the Sistine Chapel. It's to call Bach terrible music and the screeching of your fingernails down a chalkboard, a beautiful piece of work. To say, football is worthy of my thinking. God, not so much. It's to be insane morally is what it is. It's to be insane in our values. Nothing is more idolatrous than living with few thoughts of God because I guarantee you that if you're living with few thoughts of God, you're living with many thoughts of yourself and you're placing yourself where he ought to be. So everything depends on what you think about God. A.W. Tozer put it this way, very famous quote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll just say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Reason number four, to imitate David's example of meditating on the person and work of God is this. Every error in theology can be traced back to a false understanding of God. Every error in theology can be traced back to a false understanding of God. So so in our last message, we talked about how our minds are the telescope 
by which we see and behold the invisible God. Your mind is your instrument. It's, your mind is a terrible thing to waste because it is the way through which you see and behold God in this life. And so you want to improve it. You want to refine it. We, we get to see greater glories and depths of God as our mind grows. But no matter how good our minds may be, this is one thing that's true of every one of us. Our minds are all broken. We're all coming at this with a broken telescope. Our telescopes have gone out of focus because of the fall. When man sinned in the garden and the promised curse was brought upon all mankind, that curse affected every part of who we are, including our minds. And I would suggest that the fall affected our minds in at least two ways. One is that our minds are not as sharp as they otherwise would have been had sin not entered the world. 2 Corinthians 3.14 speaks of unbelievers and how their minds have been dulled, hardened, so that they do not understand what they ought. We are all walking around by nature with a dulled mind. We're not as sharp as we were created to be. And how I long for the resurrection day when we will receive our glorified bodies and our minds will return to the kind of sharpness and clarity they were meant to have before the fall. Mount Hermon, are you looking forward to a glorified mind? Are you? I hope you are. It's going to be awesome. The second effect that the fall had on our minds is that our hearts were darkened. Our hearts were turned inward towards ourselves and towards sin and selfishness. And this affected our minds because our minds are always steered by our hearts. Don't ever forget that. We've said it a million times. You're not fair and balanced. Your mind is steered by your heart. Whatever you desire, it, it turns your mind in the ways it wants to go. And so because of this, because every human being is trying to understand God with a broken telescope, there has always been error in the world. Even among those with the most sincere, saved hearts, longing to know God, there has been error. Sometimes it's innocent error. A pastor is truly longing to know and understand the truth and preach it clearly to God's people, and yet error finds its way in. I know there's been error in this pulpit. I know it. I have a broken telescope. A, a preacher preaches with a loving heart and a pure desire, but his message ends up leading people astray at some point or another. At other times, error comes into our lives because of unbelievers within the Christian church who have wicked desires and selfish desires and they preach whatever suits their, their ends best. As Christians, we have to be regularly renewing our minds. We're to be bringing our minds again and again to the Bible, submitting our every thought to the Bible's teaching. Being good Bereans, searching the Bible and testing everything according to its pages. And when we find that something we've been thinking is out of step with the Bible, 
It's not the Bible that needs to change. It's our own thinking. We sharpen our minds on the grindstone of the Bible. Now, most fundamentally, all of our errors in thinking are theological errors. Theology proper. Sometimes we use that word theology to refer to all Christian truth. But when we're speaking about theology proper, we're talking about God himself. Theos, God, theology, the study of God, the knowledge of God. So whether we get something wrong in our understanding of man, or we get something wrong in our understanding of salvation, or we get something wrong in our understanding of morality or spiritual gifts or end times, we can always trace it back to an error in how we see God himself. So those who believe that salvation is a work have a false view of God. Those who believe that God does 99% of the work but still needs us to do 1% of it, they have a false view of God, a, a deficient view of God. Those who believe that God will bring everybody to heaven no matter what they've done, that he'll just sweep their sins under the carpet, that there's no need for a hell, that all people will be saved. It's a deficient view of God and his justice. A deficient view of God and his righteousness. Those who say that hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes, those are all outside the control of God. He doesn't have anything to do with that. It's a deficient view of God. Friend, whatever the error may be, at root, it is an error in our thinking about God. Do you want to see the world rightly? Do you? Do you want to have understanding so that you can, so that you can be a fountain of good counsel to your children and your loved ones and your, your grandchildren and your co-workers and your neighbors. Don't, don't you want to be able to speak truth that blesses people, but you can't give what you don't have? And the only way to have good understanding, the only way to see the world rightly is at the very foundation. You've got to get God right. If you don't get God right, everything else will be faulty. He's the cornerstone. This is Jenga, right? There are certain blocks in Jenga. You pull that one and everything falls. You get God wrong, everything falls. Do we want to be mature Christians? Let us get God right. Let us get our thinking about God right. Let us, let us spend more time on Him than any other subject, who He is and what He's done. All right, number five. Number five, this is the last one. Fifth reason to imitate David and his example in meditating on the person and work of God. And it's this. To think about anything else rightly is to think about it in relation to God. To think about anything else rightly is to think about it in relation to God. You cannot think about your finances rightly if God's not in the picture. You can't. You cannot think about your family members rightly and your close relationships if you're not thinking about them in relation to God. 
You certainly cannot see yourself rightly and think about yourself rightly and assess yourself rightly if you're not thinking of yourself as you are in relation to God. I don't care if it's politics or golf, which dress to buy or which job to take. You do not see things rightly if we do not see them in relation to God. In other words, I don't want you to misunderstand what I am calling us to in these messages. I am not saying, Mount Hermon, let's go join a monastery. And let's just put everything else aside and let's just sit in a corner and think about God all day. That's not what I'm saying. Not at all what I'm saying. Rather, I am calling us to think about God above all and to think about all else in relation to him. Yes, let your mind be filled with a thousand other things, necessary things, important things, high things, deep things, but let them all be thought of centered around God. Our out-of-focus telescopes are slowly being refocused as we grow in Christ and have our thinking renewed by his word. If you're a Christian, you're like that blind man that Jesus healed when at first the man opened his eyes and he could see, but things were kind of blurry. He said, people look like trees. And then Jesus touched him again and, and his sight was fully restored. Well, in this life, we're not yet at sight fully restored. In this life, we are blurry, but we can still see, right? It's, it's a little unclear. We're still growing. Our, our eyesight is still refining, but we're learning. And as we grow in Christ, things are getting clearer. And it's on the last day when we're made perfect in body and soul that we'll see things in full clarity. But we can make gains in this life. And all things can become sweeter and all things can become more wonderful to us and more glorious to us as we see them as they rightfully are in relation to God. It's Romans eleven thirty six. All things are from him. God is the origin of everything. All things are through him. Nothing continues to exist or has any significance or has any meaning apart from God and his ultimate plan. Everything has a purpose in the plan of God. There is nothing in this world that exists by accident. There is no event that occurs by accident. There is no person who breathes by accident. Everything is through God, part of his plan. You should see everybody and everything in that way. There's no luck. There's no coinkydink. There's only providence. Ephesians 1.11, if you need proof. And then, of course, all things are for him. All things are for him. Everything has a purpose. Our secular world says nothing has meaning. Nothing has purpose. It was just a big bang, and everything was, and one day it's all going to go away, and it has no, no meaning, no purpose. Romans 11.36 says everything has a purpose. Everything has a purpose, and it's for him. You've already set your eyes on a thousand objects today that are expressing the glories of God to you. And every one of them exists 
to display something of his attributes, of his wonder, of who he is to your soul. And we're just learning to begin to see it. We're still babies in this process of learning to see his glory everywhere. Everything exists for him. Here is the irony for those who dismiss God as mere superstition. The scientism of our day that says only what we can prove in a laboratory is true. There is no God. There are no souls. There is nothing spiritual. Everything is only material and physical. The truth is people who dismiss God will never understand anything material or physical rightly. They will never be able to really understand what it is they are seeking to understand the greatest scientist, the greatest explorer, the greatest mathematician in this world will remain a fool until he is willing to humble himself and acknowledge the holy God. And the most uneducated, simple, aging, feeble, frail little Christian widow is wiser than all the wise of this world when she understands that all things exist from him and through him and for him. So, application. In these two messages, we've opened up Psalm 145, verse 5. We explained the verse. We pulled out the doctrine. I've tried to help you see why you should embrace this doctrine. What's the application? It's very simple. Just like David, will you resolve to meditate on the person and work of God? Will you take his resolution as your resolution? Practically speaking, here's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to come to our Sunday services during this sermon series and to come prepared to think high and deep thoughts about God. I'm calling you to study your Bible at home and in every other setting in a God-centered way. You've not understood the passage if you haven't seen the glory of God there. Seek out God in every passage. I'm calling you, practice this this week, to look for God in everything around you. See his hand around you in the natural world. See his hand around you in what man has been able to produce from the natural world. See God's hand in your relationships. See God's hand in the events of your life. See God everywhere and live, seek to live in a constant state of joyful reverence as you see the glory glory of God all around you. And then... Worship, because this God loves you and has made you his own through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what is the response to all of this? It is what we have in Psalm 145. I will praise him forever and ever and ever. And I can't say let's pray until I say this. Dear unbeliever, know that this journey cannot begin for you until you've come to Jesus Christ. If you've not had your eyes opened by Jesus Christ, you're still at day one blind. And this will never happen for you. Humble yourself. See your need for Jesus and run to him and ask him to open your eyes that you may see the God of glory. Let's pray.